Welcome to Spotlight. I'm Adala Kim, reporting for Private Debt Investor. As credit investors see patterns of distress cycles this year, some investors and advisors are increasingly focusing on the opportunistic credit investments, such as distressed debt, special situations, and other corporate lending segments where banks are not lending to. In this episode of Spotlight, we discuss patterns of distress cycles. Why this crisis different from the last one, and how institutional investors are navigating it through. Bruce Tomlinson is head of alternative strategies at SunSuper, one of Australia's largest and fastest-growing super funds, with more than 1.4 million members and 67 billion Australian dollars in fund under management. When he joined back in 2007, SunSuper invested in alternatives via fund of funds and multi-strategy funds. After the GFC, also known as the global financial crisis, the superannuation fund gradually shifted towards direct manager selection. Also, he says more regulations on banks, particularly around required margin of capital and solvency after the GFC, progressed many opportunities for institutions, especially on the bank replacement credit side. And so we started to gradually do more in credit investing, and we've really just sort of followed that through. Now, for the past decade, to the point now where about seventy percent of the capital in this alternative strategies portfolio is is credit, and it ranges from a small amount of sort of senior direct lending, lower risk type credit strategies, right through to distressed loan to own, post real, special situations type things. We invest in both public and private credit, both corporate and structured asset backed credit. Uh, we also, importantly, I guess, six odd years ago, started to to do co-investing alongside our GPs, and so now co-investing and in, indirect—it's about a third of of our capital. So probably almost half of our credit is co-invest and direct. The other half is through commingle funds. Bev Durston is founder of H Haven, a specialist boutique advisor across a broad range of alternative assets. H Haven works with a handful of leading institutions and family offices from operations in both the UK and Australia. We already had kind of pre-prepared clients for this because we it was our view that we were close to the end of the economic cycle, and whilst we didn't expect the health crisis that has eventuated, we had pre-invested them into funds that would only start investing. Or would pivot into that area if there was a significant disruption in markets. So, so in March and April, these kind of contingency or multi-purpose funds were either pivoted to that distressed opportunity set or were initiated for the first time in March and April. She adds, it is worthwhile to focus on the anatomy of a typical distress cycle, which involves three separate phases. Phase one is now largely over. That's basically traded credit, where high-quality companies will trade down for technical reasons. This is already over, and we've already got, as I said, some significant money is already back from that. Phase two is the stressed and distressed phase that we are now in, involving impaired balance sheets and due to overleverage and the COVID shutdown, causing companies to need rescue financing. So this phase typically lasts around four months to a year. And it's been particularly acute in specific COVID sectors like airlines, hotels, hospitality, etc. So this phase started in May after the snapback, and we think it will continue until the middle of next year. And you've certainly seen bankruptcies and companies filing for restructurings rise. They're probably around about five to seven percent now, I'd say, in the US and Europe. And then phase three is typically the main event for distressed. 
and that involves more traditional bankruptcies, restructuring, non-performing loan portfolios and rescue capital where the returns are the highest and where LPs need to invest through longer locked-up capital vehicles. Thurston notes the third phase of a traditional distress cycle typically starts around one and a half years after the dislocation event and then can last for up to five years. However, she adds that this time is different. If it follows the normal cycle, it wouldn't start till maybe the second half of 2021 when the stress companies have exhausted all other credit sources, when amend and pretend and sort of extend has stopped working and they eventually start to fail in larger numbers. However, this time we believe that the cycle maybe this time is different because there's been a whole decade of central bank intervention which has led the market to believe that basically the Fed's going to rescue everyone. We've also seen unprecedented intervention by the Fed in new sectors of the market. For the very first time, they've been in CLOs, they've been in high-yield debt, they've been in bond ETFs. It's a bit of a concern for us because this may mean that phase three does not follow the normal pattern. So there's so much excess liquidity in markets at the moment due to central bank purchases and also due to people disinvesting from bonds because they're told they're going to be low yielding for many years ahead, that this excess liquidity may actually disrupt the normal pattern of phase three. Market sources confirm to us that there are many funds in the market now raising capital, which would be designed for stage three and closed up capital. And this leads to, if they're all successful, there's around 70 billion plus of capital that's waiting to be deployed into phase three. But at this stage, we're not sure it's going to follow the normal pattern. She says the key question is how big phase three is and whether phase three actually eventuates, given the amount of liquidity around and the amount of support by the central banks. She adds, although the opportunity set is significant, it is concerning that there is going to be so much liquidity available for companies being lent out with very low yields. In other words, we may experience zombie capitalism. There's $3.5 trillion in leveraged loans in the high yield market and Standard & Poor's and Moody's and Fitch etc expecting approximately 10%, maybe 15% of that to go into default over the next 12 to 18 months. So that's a significant opportunity set. That means like $400 billion of capital of face value. However, my concern is that the zombie capitalism means that actually there's going to be so much liquidity available for companies being lent at very low yields, that companies are going to be able to survive and borrow money from the markets because there's a lot of money that's being thrown around. So as we said, phase three, which wouldn't typically start until the second half of next year, which is where people are raising lots of money for now, I think that's a bit of a question mark. So how we're dealing with it is we've got phase two capital already raised and managers are going to be running out of those monies for the distress that we pre-funded into, say, say, the second half of next year. And we're now evaluating how much money we want to raise in stage three and indeed how much money, how long that opportunity set's going to last. There's a big dislocation between what's happening in the real economy and how market yields are currently priced. You know, market yields have snapped back significantly, which means that people expect that the economy is going to snap back in this V shape. We don't actually believe that. We think it's more like a W shape or that there is going to be more distress to come. But that very much depends upon how long governments continue to provide this support. 
Thus far, the Fed has just jawboned a lot. It's got seven separate purchase programs, but it hasn't actually had to invest a great deal. If that investment comes through in the second half of this year or the first half of next year, then I think phase three may not actually eventuate in any way, shape or form the amount that people expect and that uh, companies will be able to just borrow their way for many years ahead through what should have been a restructuring and a bankruptcy process. However, the opportunity set in Asia is different from the US and European markets because Asia started in COVID earlier, has coped very well with it and is now largely through it with occasional lockdowns happening. So I think the opportunity set in Asia, which we're investing into, is a small mixture of special situations, particularly against real estate lending. We're also using mezzanine debt in Asia to assist companies with growth capital because there are companies looking to expand and to take over other companies. And so it's more on the growth side in Asia than necessarily the opportunity set, which we're not sure how much is going to eventuate in the US and Europe. Tomlinson also sees the liquidity provided by the central banks and governments forcing asset prices back in certain sectors. He also says that his team have seen interesting opportunities on the private credit side, such as short-term bridge financings and real estate-backed lending deals. There's no doubt that you've got to have relationship and structures, vehicles, mandates set up in advance of this in order to dissipate because... There's no doubt that first phase was very short and sharp with the central bank and government sort of liquidity really forcing prices back very quickly in certain sectors, although there continues to be some technical pressure and stress, particularly in high yield, you know, sub-investment grade space. And then to that end, we did a little bit in that kind of first phase into second phase, as Bev mentioned, stressed high yield and definitely, uh, and, and obviously public market bonds and loans, but then... On the private side, we are certainly seeing some borrowers who are looking to do sort of bridge rescue finance type type things if they, for whatever reason, they need to try and negotiate with a banking lender consortium to extend bigger piece of the cap stack. And so they might need a short term bridge piece. And uh, we've seen a few interesting opportunities come through in that space. So we put that in that sort of second phase of this credit sort of uh, cycle. And then that third phase, yeah, we have existing relationships and have done two sort of commitments, if you will, to sort of multi-strat credit managers who have workout capabilities and who can invest in stressed opportunities and lead credit committees and lead restructurings. And that, to be honest, we've moved that up our agenda. And, and I would have thought if you'd asked me three months ago, that would have been a 2021 thing. We've committed to one and about to commit to another one basically now or in the next quarter. So we've brought that forward because it feels like the phases have been compressed somewhat. And to Bev's point, we don't know how long the opportunity will last and you need to be sort of getting set or thinking about getting set now rather than leaving it to next year. Looking at some of our portfolio companies, stress and opportunity in many areas, we do have a decent amount of asset backed because to some extent that was the opportunity that the banks pulled back from. And so that bank replacement opportunity was quite strong in certain cyclical areas and certain asset-backed areas like real estate, like energy, like transportation. You've obviously, you've got to be careful. We certainly would focus on a partner, on a GP who's got deep fundamental skills. They might not necessarily operate the company, but if need be, they can get involved and look to take it over if there is you know, real stress and a bankruptcy situation. We have a range of partners. So particularly in the private space, we want them to have operational and technical capabilities, not just to be looking at a Bloomberg screen. He adds that given the difficulties with traveling overseas, his team's focusing on working with existing investment partners and fund managers.
in this kind of COVID world, fundamental research for us is difficult. We're in Sydney, Australia, and, you know, it's super hard to travel overseas, if not impossible. So hence, it's easier to work with existing partners and GPs. So that's obviously where we're focused on and, and also focused on the assets we already have and more actively monitoring those assets, engaging with our managers, particularly in the single asset car invest space, right, where we have more transparency. And in, in some limited cases, we actually have some governance, either through a limited partner advisory committee or with our direct investment, we have some governance rights. So we're more engaged and spending more time on that side of it. But at this stage, we feel we have enough relationships, enough access with our existing partners and existing vehicles. Durston says there's a couple of opportunity sets that she thinks are sensible. Um, one is the asset-backed markets, which, as Bruce said, has had turned out to have a lot more leverage in it and was significantly impacted, entirely seized up in the March period as leverage and repos were withdrawn. And that actually that market hasn't snapped back in anywhere near as much as other markets. Um, we've actually got like only about 50, but sub 60% snapback in those yields relative to where they spiked to in COVID situation, especially in the US, more so in the US than Europe, relative to uh, to other segments that have easily snapped back sort of 70 or 80% in, down in yields from their highs. And so that space has, particularly in the single B, double B and below, seems significantly illiquid. And uh, we think that's going to remain a significant opportunity set, particularly amongst things like mortgages, things like commercial real estate, um, CLOs even in the US market, CLOs look quite attractive. There's some interesting things happening there with them failing their OC tests and their trouble C bucket tests that may cause some fallout even in the CLO market, which of course didn't get disrupted in 2008. So we still think that's an opportunity set. The other one that we're looking at and have already funded is a specialist oil and gas manager. And like Bruce, we're also um, sticking largely to our existing contacts and managers who we've, we've got a, a significant number that we've been speaking with towards the end of the cycle about these types of funds. It's difficult for LPs to conduct significant operational due diligence and investment due diligence when they're all working from home, etc. We've got the advantage that we've got on the ground local teams, which are part of our platform for both investment due diligence and operational due diligence. So we've got a range of providers, eight to 10 providers in each of those spaces. So we can, if necessary, actually work with them on the ground and, and they can actually do the local visit and we can tic-tac with them about a potential new manager so to be able to put in place if necessary. That sees us well-placed, dependent upon what the size of phase three is, for us to continue to invest through 2021. And let's see whether or not you get the large phase three or whether or not the snapback and the government support and liquidity of zombie capitalism means that it's actually more disappointing than people expect. Then what investors can do now? Durson says assessing the existing portfolio should be the first step. Which, of course, people have been doing under Q1 and Q2 so that they can ascertain what markdowns or marks are going to be done in the second half of the year. Focus uh, here should be on earlier vintages who are now already largely invested or in the process of harvesting because obviously those have been the ones that managers can't really change by taking advantage of the of the lower pricing. So we anticipate the largest markdowns will come from these fully invested portfolios. And from what we've seen from managers, 
The existing portfolios have been marked down significantly in the March quarter, in the Q1, and maybe slightly again in the second half. And apart from private real estate that we expect will be marked down later, we actually think that the damage is kind of like we haven't had a V-shape in private markets. We've had just a markdown. There's not going to be a massive markup in June or September, depending upon what you know, markets do from here, but we're not anticipating at all the shape that we've seen in public markets. Secondly, we're, we're spending a lot of time on reassessing our current cash flow forecasts. We're expecting lower or suspended asset realisations, meaning less cash being coming in. And at the same time, the distressed and special sits managers have been calling capital and will do so far more quickly than planned until the second half of 2020. So keeping available enough cash beyond what was previously anticipated is going to be important. Thirdly, we need to reassess those pipeline opportunities in the light of this new environment. And in particular here, I'm talking about how long you invest for in phase three, how long you commit for. Is it five years from next year or how you actually invest in phase three which may as we talked about be truncated or or curtailed by the amount of massive intervention by fiscal and monetary authorities so the focus should be on to underwrite them and make sure that you're not going to get caught into a very large distressed fund that is trying to invest in 2023 and 2024 when there may not be the opportunities there and then the fifth task i think lp should be doing is to enhance the stress testing of their portfolio outcomes it's kind of strange that this time yields didn't spike they didn't spike anywhere near as high as they did in the gfc and yet the dichotomy is that the real economy is far worse than the gfc the real economy is more like the great depression than it is the gfc and yet we've got you know yields not being anywhere near as high so we're still stress testing worse than gfc at this stage and we think that makes sense prudent sense to do so but you certainly need to look again as markets change as to how far you stress test your portfolios so that people can be prepared for what may come next be it a w shape or be it just continued um, government support so there isn't as much distress as we think that'll be the key question i think that we're all looking for in the next six months thomason adds his team's now focusing on phase two and three i agree 100 phase one is largely gone if you weren't set up for it you largely missed it you know there's still uh, some opportunities i think in kind of crossover you know sort of triple double b space but there's not much there europe looks a little more interesting than the us but nonetheless most of that phase one sort of stressed public credit opportunities gone. I agree also with Bev. We think managers with sort of modest capital raises are better. So yeah, the two that we've done are, they're groups that are larger groups. One's 10 bill, one's 20 bill, but the vehicles they're raising are closed in and they're sort of capping them at about a billion. So we think that's appropriate sort of size. And then the other thing I'd add is with Carnvest, we've got sort of commitments where we have degrees of discretion. So, you know, well over, it's probably about a billion and a half, only about a third of that is drawn. So we have dry powder. It does depend on the opportunity set and whether the manager has that co-invest sort of requirement because sometimes they'll take it down all themselves. But we do have, you know, as I say, these structures in place. And so to the extent we see the flow and we like the opportunities, we've got dry powder to do more there. But I would reaffirm that is us upsizing a position the manager's already got. It's not us out there doing our own direct deals. You know, it's going to be a long grind back to recover the losses. It's been a disappointing period for credit, whether it's private or event stressed. 
public credit, it's been a tough period, but I think credit is well placed to deliver decent returns over the next couple of years. I mean, just looking, looking at some of the private companies on our PE book and sometimes even the kind of post-reorg equity positions that, that we've got, only a couple of which, there's fundamental stress out there, revenues are, are impacted, leverage in some cases, is too high. There'll be covenants will be tripped and there'll be equity cures required for many, many, many businesses. So I'd rather be focused on credit than having to dip in more equity. So it'll be super interesting. You know, I think the balance between PE sponsors and private credit might hopefully shift more towards the private credit investors, um, but we'll see how things unfold. It's interesting times. That's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, and PEI's various titles online. I want to give special thanks to Bruce and Bev for taking their time out of busy schedules to speak with us. For Private Debt Investor, I'm Adala Kim. Thanks for listening. <laughs>